It, it, it honestly amazes me some of the decisions that founders made in 2021 about who they wanted on their cap table and who they wanted, who they were willing to let into their boardroom. It was like, really? We're going to do this just about valuation and dilution? That's the only thing you're going to think about? And I think, uh, you know, some folks have had a hard time this year and, you know, for the rest of the life of their company, regretting some of those choices. Everyone and welcome to FinTech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Matt Harris, partner at Bain Capital Ventures and one of the FinTech OG legends who started investing back in 1995 and has been working with FinTech entrepreneurs throughout several cycles and market environments. Some of his investments include GoCardless, Orum, Phoenix, Acorns, and many more. In this episode, I stopped by the Bain Capital Ventures office in New York City, where Matt and I discuss investing through economic cycles. Matt was a FinTech VC during the dot-com bubble. What did he learn once the bubble burst and what should young VCs keep in mind today? B2B versus B2C FinTech. Matt overwhelmingly prefers backing B2B companies with little to no credit risk. Why is that and how does the scoreboard look like today? The future of FinTech and why Bain is excited about the potential of embedded finance. What makes a great investor? How founders should think about their board and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this amazing conversation with Matt Harris from Bain Capital Ventures. All right, Matt Harris, how are you doing today? Terrific. It's great to be here with you. All right. So I didn't hit record correctly, so we're redoing this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds just as good as the first time. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming me to your offices uh, in New York City. Um, excited to do this in person. I think we're going to have a wonderful conversation. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an early day. So thanks again. Uh, Matt, you, you've been in the venture space in fintech for quite a while. You've seen a lot of changes. You've done a lot of things. You've met a lot of people. Tell us about your background and also tell us how have you observed the VC investing space evolved and, and changed over the last two to three decades? Sure. So just a little bit on, on that background. I started investing in 1995, actually started in private equity at Bain Capital. Back then, that's really the only business Bain Capital was in. Um, ended up buying uh, a fintech company. Uh, we bought a company called TRW Credit that we transformed into Experian. It's one of the three large credit bureaus here in the United States. Um, and I really fell in love with it, you know, seeing the, the transformative impact that data and technology can have on, on financial institutions. Um, also learned that I didn't love private equity. And so uh, with, with Bank Capital's blessing left in, late, in the late 90s and that the firm seeded me to start my own uh, seed stage venture capital firm to focus on fintech. Um, so that's really been the last 22 years of my life uh, is backing founders 
looking to transform the financial services industry one way or, or another from the inside or from the outside. Um, you know, I think in terms of changes in the industry, when I started my own firm, it was rare to have a specialist. You know, back then, the, the venture capital industry was basically either IT or healthcare. Those are the two choices. And, and so it was distinctive to have any kind of industry focus. And then surely, you know, financial services was an unusual one. Uh, I think the <clears throat> general perception um, was that most industries within financial services were kind of well-regulated oligopolies. You know, banks controlled this, you know, lending, for instance, and Visa and MasterCard controlled payments and a set of insurance carriers that we could all name, the Geico's, the Progressive's, the State Farm's controlled insurance, um, the investment banks and trading firms, you know, well-known, well Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. So there wasn't the perception that there was a lot of room you know, for for founders to to build businesses, and so most of the founders who were doing anything in fintech, you know, two decades ago, were basically starting new vendors. You know, basically new software companies selling into those regulated incumbents. Um, but that wasn't really what I was interested in, to be honest. And and twenty years ago, that was a tough way to live. I mean. Those firms that I just rattled off were pretty used to buying from other large firms. And you had, even then, the FIS and Fiserv and uh, Tesis, you know, the sort of core vendors had had really strangleholds on the procurement arms of of banks. And they had the equivalent vendors in, in other lanes as well. Um, so my approach was to, you know, try to find founders who are looking to take on the incumbents versus, you know, make their lives easier by selling them novel technology. Um, so that was, you know, going back 20 years, sort of what what I thought the right vector was. And, you know, frankly, there's been a lot of chapters since then in terms of what, what works and what doesn't. So you were already in fintech, investing in fintech during the dot-com bust. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, the actual arc of that, you know, I, I started my own firm, I was 24, and it was 1997. And so for the first couple of years, I was doing, you know, anything that came my way. And investing seemed like a pretty easy thing to do. <laughs> um, everything worked. Yeah. So I didn't have much of a focus during the dot-com bubble. And it was really actually only after the bust that I did, you know, some sort of soul searching and contemplation about how I was going to build a career. You know, I'd certainly discovered that I liked this and I hoped that I was good at it, although certainly the recent data <laughs> post-bubble was not clear that I was good at it, but I, I had an instinct that I was good at it. But at least for me, you know, that's what led me to this point of view, that if I was going to have a career in it, I had to have an area of distinctive focus. Um, so it was actually kind of the wreckage of the dot-com bust that convinced me that a, a, a fintech, you know, is a way to be a different kind of investor. What did your early successes, meaning successful companies that you backed early on, what did they have in common? Um, 
generally they were doing something improbable. <laughs> you know, I think the the investments that I made that were conventional, uh, that kind of made sense when I explained them to other people, um, and that had, you know, some sort of downside protection, like, oh, boy, if this doesn't work the way I hope, I can at least sell it to X, Y, or Z. None of those were particularly interesting. It's a weird way, and, you know, it was a seed stage venture capital firm. And, you know, in that field of endeavor, you want to really pursue risk. Uh, that's why you have a portfolio. And so the risk management comes in through diversification, but each individual investment should be kind of borderline insane. I think your background helps inform what you are investing in today. And, and when I look at your portfolio, you have mostly infrastructure and you have mostly B2B solutions. Um, is it a combination of your expertise, your background, and also your view of the future that kind of drives this thesis? Yeah, so um, B2B versus B2C, I think, is, a, is a, a big distinction. If you look at my portfolio versus, you know, if you look at the uh, other fintech-focused investors who I hold in extremely high regard, like the, you know, Nick and Mickey at Ribbit or, or Nigel and, and Frank and the team at QED or, or Hans um, and his team at Nike, Dan Rosen at Conway, I could go on, but... Um, Mostly, the firms that I am, you know, generally don't compete with, you know, that I'm compared to, though, have a healthy B to C mix, and I don't. You know, I've done one B to C investment in the past ten years, uh, a company called Acorns, and which I'm gl awfully glad I did. It's a terrific company, but you know, I, part of it is just humility uh, about what I'm good at. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it is exactly, but I know what it isn't, which is, you know, picking winners uh, in terms of who consumers are going to choose ultimately. It's almost like, to me, kind of a fashion question. <laughs> um, you know, catching lightning in a bottle in terms of marketing to consumers is, is for me, very hard to, to predict. Um, so we did Acorns at the series uh, B or C, it was clear that they had a mousetrap around customer acquisition. And I would definitely be open to that, um, sort of that stage investing. But the idea of sort of, you know, sitting around a conference room table with a founder, which is a stage I often get involved at that, you know, it's just the founder, um, and having her or him explain to me how they're going to acquire a million customers. I just uh, I don't have that vision or imagination. So that's partly a kind of a personal failing of mine. But it's also, if I'm honest, kind of, a, you know, just looking at the data. It's rough. You know, the fact is the consumer-focused incumbents are not terrible. And the consumer-focused insurgents uh, have really struggled, um, whether it be the neobanks, um, Chime seems like a great business, but um, most of them, certainly all the ones that have gone public, are trading for less than cash. The consumer-focused insurance players trading for less than cash, very challenging. The consumer-focused lenders trading for less than cash. 
So you don't look at the universe of B2C fintechs and say, boy, that sounds great. Where do I write my next check? And, you know, you might argue that this is a, a low in the market and, and maybe, you know, 2022 isn't the right time to do that analysis. I'd kind of argue that it is, that this, you know, is predictable. Um, that unlike countries like China and Brazil, with extremely weak incumbents and massive opportunities for the ant financials and the new banks, the United States and, and most of Europe does not have that wide open playing field. Um, and regulated financial institutions have massive advantages that are you know hard to overcome with just technology and, and kind of drive. So I'm not saying it's played out, but um, on the consumer side, I personally haven't seen anything transformative. These are generally just, you know, digital versions of extremely well understood products. How about on the credit side? I, I've heard from a, a few founders that tried raising from, from you, from BCV, with credit driven businesses, that you're not particularly a huge fan of credit driven businesses. Uh, maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, I mean, at first I would just point to the scoreboard. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe it's a lack of imagination, right? I mean, maybe there, there's a new credit business brewing somewhere that will prove the last kind of 20-odd years of fintech history wrong. But the fact is it's been extremely challenging to build a, a, an important company on a – capital-adjusted, risk-adjusted basis that, that makes sense in credit. Um, and that is intuitive to me. You know, the if you think about a software company, um, you've got incredibly high gross margins. You've got recurring revenue. You've got relatively low complexity in terms of kind of real-world factors. You're just delivering code. There's no hardware. There's no logistical complexity. Uh it's kind of the perfect business. Um, and then everything else is like some degree less perfect. Um, and payments is pretty close, though. It has a lot of those same you know, characteristics. It does have regulatory risk. Uh, and you're moving money around, so there's logistical complexity to that. But credit is really at the very far end of the spectrum from that. Um, it has you know, liquidity risk, which I think is poorly understood by most founders in that in order to be a founder, and this is why we love them, like there's an incredible confidence that comes, you know, with that. And as you explain over the arc of time, like every five to eight years, there's a liquidity crisis, um, generally speaking globally, and then locally, depending on where you live, more frequently than that. And it basically kills you. You know, it's sort of like it, you, you, you have a hard time surviving, no matter what, no matter how good your business is when the money dries up, because your primary input is money. So liquidity crises would be the single biggest reason. Um, and you're competing generally with banks who they have liquidity, they have deposits. It's an incredible unfair advantage. So, you know, your single most expensive input, your single most important input is free for your competitors incredibly expensive for you, and evaporates every five years. Yeah. I could probably stop there, but I'll continue. Uh, credit risk is another. Um, 
that's a bad thing on the face of it. You'd rather not have credit risk in your business. But I think there's a nuance here that I've observed, which is that the culture of venture-backed companies have at their heart a growth mindset, and they should. It should be a driving tension in the business, in the boardroom, with your direct reports, down to the newest joiner and the least tenured and, and uh, you know, low person on the, on the org chart that we're here to grow maniacally and build a scale business. That is at odds with a credit culture. You know, and you see it again and again, Lending Club being a classic example of like that growth mindset running up against a risk management and credit culture. Because obviously the moral hazard of running a, a lending business is that it's easy to grow. Yeah. All too easy. You, you don't want to give credit to those who won it the most. And right. And so you want to hit your numbers this quarter? Like, great, let's shovel more money out the door. Like, there's always people willing to take it. And so it, it just takes an iron will to resist that tension. And I mean, you may have a, a founder or CEO who can resist it, but how do you prevent that salesperson selling money to willing takers, you know, outside of your, your span of control from at the margin leaning in? And you, you simply can't. I think the, the single biggest thing I see with all these companies is, you know, you disambiguate the growth and you see like, oh, it looks like your average loan size is growing. It's always that. You know, it's like, boy, okay, units can be expensive. There's marketing costs to a unit. But once you get a borrower, boy, you can lend them 20% more. They're going to take it. You can lend them 50% more. And credit models tend to be much more geared towards a yes-no than, uh, you know, tuned to the nuances of how large that loan should be. So it's a place where salespeople can sort of drive a truck through the risk management to try to make their number. Um, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time with lending companies and I did, was chairman of one for, for years. And I know more about this than I would like, uh, and, you know, having been outfoxed at every turn by, by the rank and file of this company. So, um, so credit risk is, you know, a very nuanced and difficult problem. Uh, and then finally of regulatory risk. There are, you know, natural forces for alternative lenders that drive you into high interest rate lending because your cost of capital is high. So like you're looking for pockets where you can make a wide net interest margin where you're, you know, starting well behind, well behind your competitors in terms of your cost. And so you, you're invariably driven to pockets of vulnerable populations who don't have other sources of, of credit. And maybe you charge them less than you could but you're charging them a lot. And so the reputation risk and the and the regulatory risk around lending is another matter. I guess that implies that you are going to have some misses of of credit companies that actually do end up being being huge and and it sounds like you're okay with that. It's just not your focus. Yeah, I mean I think uh the ones that I think about are like Newbank. Um now, I had no edge in sort of assessing Brazil, you know, when Newbank was founded, but I had incredible regard for Nigel Morris, who nailed it, uh, and and spent a huge amount of time with David and, and helped, you know, I think helped David to build that company. 
And if I were Nigel Morris, I probably, you know, would have had the same angle. But, you know, as Matt Harris, I didn't. Um, so I think that opened my eyes to the fact that there may be different geographic, you know, contexts in which the incumbent competition is sufficiently weak uh, and maybe for structural reasons to where um, you can build an important company. Now, I think in their case, they've become a bank. And so this is another question is like, do you want to build a bank? Banks, um, zero exception, trade at book value multiples as they should. Now they can be four times book. That's tremendous. Yeah. Not, um, not everyone's Santander though. Yeah. Or some of the Indian banks, you know, with incredibly high ROEs and growth and they're generating their own equity. So, you, you know, some distinctive banks can trade at three or four times book. Um, but most trade, you know, you know, one and a half times book or 0.8 times book. And so it also is sort of, a, and they use capital every year generally if they're in hyper growth mode. And so the, between the dilution and the ultimate valuation multiple, you still have to ask yourself whether you want to be a bank investor and whether that suits the venture capital model. Um, but I am asking myself that question because I think banking – you know, does need transformative players like Capital One was in its day. Um, and I think I could be useful in that regard to founders. So I, I do think about that uh, as a way to get involved in lending. Um, and I think about embedded lending, you know, the transformational benefits of lending being embedded in software for consumers and even more for businesses. That does change the answer in terms of a lot of, it doesn't change liquidity risk, um, but it could transform credit risk in such a way that could reduce the liquidity risk. You know, if something is truly and demonstrably safe, um, that does change where you can access capital and, and how readily you can. So I am spending time on that. You, you clearly are because you published a pretty comprehensive report about embedded finance. Um, and it was a, I know it was a big collaboration with a lot of your team members. Uh, maybe take us through some of the highlights of this report and why write it. Yeah. So the backstory here is, you know, if you look at my investments, you can really divide them quite naturally into two camps. One are fintech infrastructure companies. Um, and the other are what we call embedders. They're basically software companies, B2B software companies. You'd argue that Acorns actually is a B2C software company. Like, they didn't start life saying, hey, come open a brokerage account. They created a software tool that helped you, using behavioral finance, save money. And then within that, they had a brokerage account as where they kept it and how they monetized. So this, this archetype has really been how I've invested kind of for the last 10 years, backing software companies who monetize through financial services. <clears throat> and... It just took me a minute to kind of realize that's what I was doing. And so in, in kind of 2017, 2018, we had these internal conversations about embedded financial services. And then in 2019, um, gave a talk in, in the second quarter of that year about the intersection of software and financial services and sort of laid some of the groundwork for this, you know, what we think of, frankly, as a movement. Um, and then, you know, there were a lot of people like, you know, how they the steam engine was invented by like seven people at the same time in the 1800s. I think this holds true for embedded financial services as well. I think the, you know, 
Angela Strange, who I sit on boards with and hold an incredibly high regard, wrote a or gave an incredible talk about every, you know, every software company becoming a fintech. And so this idea sort of independently occurred uh, to a bunch of folks in 2019. And um, it creates an opportunity, though, to keep pushing the thinking further. You know, if we're, our job basically is to be service providers to founders, that's sort of how I think about my job, then there's ways you can do that, you know, across a spectrum of activities. Giving the money is useful. Sitting on boards, you know, can be useful. I, uh, <laughs> I'd like to survey my founders more frequently to ask them how useful that is, but it can be useful. And then delivering intellectual property, creating and packaging and delivering intellectual property that can help the entire founder community is another way. Um, and lots of, lots of VCs do this and, you know, so what's our way of doing that? Like a super nerdy way (laughs) that would be like consistent with my personal brand and the Bain brand. And so we decided to collaborate with Bain and company, um, Bain and company has a tremendous, you know, financial services practice and a set of people that are very active at the intersection of, of technology and financial services. And so we, about a year ago, um, started working on on this report, which really sizes and scopes and segments the different aspects of embedded finance or embedded financial services. Um, it was released in uh, in September of of 2022, uh, and it's been the response has been great. I think for a lot of founders, it's sort of the intellectual scaffolding uh, that they can use to communicate and they can use to help make decisions about where to focus. Um, and we have lots more coming in this regard. Yeah, no, f- fascinating stuff. You're talking about trends that are going to have an impact in the future. Your job as a venture capitalist is to invest in the companies that are, do- are going to dominate the future. How do you predict the future, quote unquote? I would say mainly by listening to founders. You know, we have this incredible job, you and I both, where we have this luxury of, you know, sitting here and having a bunch of fortune tellers come into our office every day. Uh, And, you know, we get to synthesize, you know, these different visions that we hear into something that's coherent to us. Um, And so I view the job not so much as predicting the future as it is, weaving together these strands of predictions, you know, that we benefit from, um, from these founders and whether that's meeting new founders or in board meetings, uh, which, you know, comprise most of my day. The job is a job of synthesis and articulation more than it is actual predictions. And, you know, embedded financial services was observing what you know, Mike Prager was doing it at Avid Exchange and Flint at Bill Trust and Mike Massaro at Flywire, landing with this software footprint, the sticky data-rich software, and then monetizing through payments or increasingly through credit, um, and then putting words around that and data around that. So I think it can, I wouldn't want to overstate, you know, how actually creative the job is. Um, but you do have to be a keen observer. Hmm. You have mentioned quite a few other investors, uh, and you know, throughout our conversation. By the way, a lot of former podcast guests, and you've also worked with a lot of investors at uh, Bain and your previous companies. 
what makes a good investor? I, you know, you, you, you just mentioned being observant, you know, the synthesis and articulation. When you're close to making that decision, right, what, what have you observed the best investors have in common? I would say boldness, not just being willing or actually being attracted to the non-obvious, being comfortable being wrong, being comfortable looking foolish. I think there's also uh, a founder archetype that is transgressive. And so you might feel more comfortable backing founders who are like you or with whom you're deeply sympathetic or uh, with whom you want to spend a huge amount of time, that's not always the right answer. Sometimes the right answer is backing founders that make you uncomfortable. You know, there's a bright line around ethics, but there's there are fewer bright lines around style. Uh, and some of the most interesting companies are built by founders that are bold to the point of being controversial. And so I think a great investor has to sift through their own biases with a great deal of self-knowledge and and really question aversions that come up, you know, question when they're shying away from something and, and parse out, maybe there's something appealing about that that I need to actually lean into. So that's a, it's a nuanced point, but it's really important. And when I, I see investors, you know, I see deals announced, for instance, and I... And I I know the person. I respect them. I, that's where I – that introspection, I think, is an important motion for an investor. Then I think this is a multi-round game. You know, it's a game of reputation. And the other thing that distinguishes great investors, in my experience, are those that deliver on their promises. Um, you can get through a cycle or two by being a good salesperson – which I, and I wish I were a better salesperson, but I, I do think uh, at the end of the day, you know, founders have an experience with you and more and more, and I'm not talking about websites where people leave reviews of venture capitalists, but more and more the, um, the world is a transparent place. And so the, the best investors are the ones who understand their reputation matters and deliver on the promises they make. And generally, that means just standing with founders when they need you. It's easy when everything's going great. It gets much harder when things are challenging. And this poses, you know, it seems like a kind of a basic thing to say, but it's a radical time management problem. You know, you advance your career a decade, two decades, and there's a lot of barnacles on the boat. You know, there's a lot of obligations you've taken on. And they don't really tend to go away. You know, they tend to accumulate. And so figuring out how to allocate your time and energy between your partners, your junior colleagues, obviously the founders that you've, you know, pledged your time and capital to, new founders who you want, um, you know, in the family, and then the ecosystem uh, of employees, potential future founders, financial institutions. You know, we host a demo day along with NICA and QED, you know, we had 500 executives from major financial institutions there to, to see our portfolio companies. Those are 500 relationships. You know, those are folks who might call me up and want to get coffee. You can't really, like, you know, have a quarterly check-in with, you know, 500 people in addition to your day job. So 
I think like waking up in the morning and, and asking yourself a set of deliberate questions about how you're spending your time is an important skill for investors. Your answer is clearly rooted on experience. Uh, when you think of the last uh, couple of decades as a VC, what are some of your mistakes that come to mind that you've learned from? Yeah, I think the mistake I keep making um, is getting enamored with my own ideas. You know, there's embedded financial services is, is surely one. You know, I, I think when you see the world through a lens of your own making, it's extremely rewarding when when you find patterns that fit with your your own you know priors that you're bringing in and again you know this business is about backing and serving founders those founders are are generally not conforming to patterns they're creating new patterns they're they're breaking old patterns and so as somebody whose approach to the business tends to be very ideas driven I continually have to just have a beginner's mind, um, and and that's hard for me because I I like coherence and systems and and theses and um, so I keep you know making the mistake of wanting to back situations that fit with my view of the world instead of using my view of the world as something I hold lightly as something that I leverage to have great conversations with founders and and be appealing to founders and then make decisions just based on those founders, whether they fit with my priors or they contradict my priors, doesn't matter. So that's my sort of like daily struggle. Speaking of founders, you have seen several teams or founders go from idea to IPO or idea to big exit or not as well. Uh, What are some of the commonalities that you keep seeing on and on from the most successful founders that you've worked with? One that doesn't make the headlines, but is really important would be resilience. You know, because the, often the narrative arc of these companies is quite, uh, you know, heroic and triumphant, but the lived experience of it can be, you know, really downright grim. And people who are uncomfortable you know, well, everyone's uncomfortable, you know, changing their mind and, and pivoting, et cetera. But people who, who resist it because of their own, you know, inflexibility, uh, unwillingness to acknowledge mistakes, uh, inability to make hard choices and then communicate those hard choices and then live with the consequences of it. It, it you know, there's a brittleness, um, to wanting to appear successful and being kind of falling into the trap of thinking that everything has to go up and to the right in order for you to fit into the pantheon of, you know, entrepreneurs you want to be a part of. So I think the flexibility of mind and the steeliness of spine that, um, frankly, that's what it takes because it's not going to be a straight path. One of the jobs of, of founders is to manage a board. Mm. You you've, you still do, and you've sat on dozens of boards. What do great boards have in common? Great boards um, should feel like any team at the company. 
you know, I mean, a, a great founder, a great CEO often views her company, his company, through the lens of, of a series of interlocking teams. There's executive leadership team. There's one layer down. There's the marketing team. That single executive leader has her own team, sales team, et cetera. And so you picture all these kind of circles that intersect. And then there's the board team. And, and the founder's job is to create a context in which that team gels as a team. Uh, generally speaking, the leader of the company is a member of that team, um, but also reports to that team. And that's where it, it can get hard for that person to, to create the norms and to bond that team. Uh, but that's in- essential. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a reason in my mind that in early stage and even you know later stage, but really still rapidly growing founder-led businesses that the CEO and chairman are one job. Because it really puts the onus of leadership of the board team in the hands of the founder until the company's mature. And then I do think a separation makes sense from a governance perspective. But for a good long time, it really is one of the founder's primary jobs is to make that team coherent and to create a context in which people show up in the, as the best version of themselves, which is to say, candid and forthright uh, and not shy or compliant or, you know, it's not about the founder bossing around the board. Just as it's not about the founder bossing around the executive leadership team. It's about getting the best out of those people because there's a version of me who is can be disconnected, who can tune out to a certain extent, who can, I'm pr- probably not inclined to be bossy and domineering and, and overly challenging, but there's certainly a lot of VCs who are. So VCs have a range of affect. Uh, and so a good board is one in which the leader, the chairman, often the founder, um, creates behavioral norms that bring out the best in those people. Um, and one thing you have to do is diversify away from just VCs um, and certainly diversify away from any monoculture, ethnic or gender, uh, to create a group that, again, like you'd like to see in your ELT. It's like hiring a, a direct report or a team member. You At the end of the day, when you're taking money from someone who's going to join your board, as a founder, in, in a way, you should look at it as hiring that person to be part of the board team. Yeah, it's like that, except worse, because you can't fire them. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Even The stakes are even higher. Yeah. That decision. yeah. It, it, it honestly amazes me some of the decisions that founders made in 2021 about who they wanted in their cap table and who they wanted, who they were willing to let into their boardroom. It was like, really? We're going to do this just about valuation and dilution? That's the only thing you're going to think about? And I think... Uh, you know, some folks have had a hard time this year and, you know, for the rest of the life of their company, regretting some of those choices. Uh, Matt, I think we, we could sit here talking for hours, but uh, we're, we're coming up on time. Before I let you go, tell us about uh, no, no person is an island, right? So maybe tell us who are some of the names that have been influential and impactful in a positive way to your career, you know, since you got started? Yeah, you know, I started uh, my own firm when I was young. 
I put two uh, venture capitalists on my, asked them to serve on my board of directors and, and really ran it as a business. Those two were a guy named Paul Mater, who was one of the founders of Highland Capital in Boston, and a fellow named Mark Nunnally, who was a partner of Bain Capital. And, and those two were instrumental in my career. And one of the, again, one of the negative tendencies I have is to focus too much on strategy and ideas and theory. Um, and they insistently drove me back to just the companies, just focus on the companies. You know, you can, you should have those top tracks. You should have those ideas. Those ideas are largely marketing to just attract great founders, just focus on the companies and their performance and how you can be useful. I needed to hear it about a hundred times and they were not shy. Um, and they also taught me how to interact with a board. I really recommend, you know, VCs who don't have operating backgrounds, um, can be amazing. Uh, but there's a there's an empathy that comes from having a board of directors trying to build a business that I really recommend if you can, if you can do it. Um, when I started my firm, I also started a fund administration business that grew to 70 people, and I was CEO of that. And um, I learned a lot. I learned I'm not an operator, for one thing, but it was just a tremendous sort of empathy development exercise. So Paul and Mark were instrumental to me. And then, you know, there's a... There's a huge amount you can learn from your other fellow directors and co-investors. You know, Brad Feld from Foundry and I have been to the wars together and came out with this incredible affection for each other. More recently, I've enjoyed working with Satya Patel from Homebrew. He's just a great, you know, whole human being. So, there, I mean, I could, I could go on and on. I've mentioned some others uh, earlier in the podcast from Fintech Land, who I, who I hold in high regard. And... And then my own partners, you know, um, this could be a really lonely business. You know, your companies are going to do what they're going to do, and sometimes they don't look great. And having a set of partners to whom you can go candidly report bad facts as well as celebrate good ones and who will support you as well as ask hard questions is, you know, a luxury that I've enjoyed here at BCB. Last question, Matt. We are in the middle of New York. You're a New Yorker. Is New York the capital of FinTech? <laughs> Yes, I mean it is. I think London has a great claim. Uh, was stronger before Brexit, and obviously, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area are the captains of tech broadly defined. But I think in a world where you can live wherever you want, more and more people are choosing to live in New York, and the incumbent advantages of the having the center of the traditional finance financial services industry be in New York is is something that's not going away. So I think. More and more, I feel confident this is the right place to be. Yeah. Founders, FinTech founders are choosing New York. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Matt, fascinating stuff. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy morning. Uh, and I'm sure the audience is going to love this episode. I hope so. Thank you for having yeah. me. It was great to be here. And I really enjoyed your questions. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Matt Harris, partner at BCV. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.